Remember your old potato print? Well, this is the potato print on steroids. And welcome to the 89th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts for people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and you can find it all at pinecopperlime.com. A quick note here, print friends. You may have been noticing some strange sound quality issues in recent episodes. And yeah, we'd been noticing it too. But we couldn't figure out what was going on. And uh, it turns out I was getting low-grade electrocuted while I was recording some of these past episodes. There was something wrong with the electrical socket that we were using in our new place. And it was sending a strong current through the computer, and into the mic, and into my headphones, which not only made me feel, like, really creepy in my brain, but was also messing with sound quality. So don't worry, we've got it all fixed up now, and hopefully it shouldn't be an issue moving forward. But if you do hear a little bit of a sound issue on some upcoming episodes, that's all that was happening. No worries. Apologies if it was distracting, it was not our intention to do that, nor was it to cook my gray matter over easy for a few episodes. So, with that caveat out of the way, merchandise! We have it! It's cute! It will make you popular with your crush! Check it out! Link in the show notes! We also have a Patreon page, where supporters can join at tiers starting at just a dollar a month, and that helps us to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like stickers, prints, and mugs, as well as access to our bonus content, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests from materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So, if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes to sign up and hear more. It's also totally fine if you don't want to know more about that, because times are weird and tough and even a dollar a month sounds stressful if that's the case we just want you to listen and enjoy and maybe share the podcast with a friend or two printmaking forever shun the non-believers pine copper lime is brought to you by speedball art products who've been offering a diverse range of high quality products to your creative practice since 1997 Products like Armheim 1618, a high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill in the city of Armheim. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs, and our friend and guest of episode number four, Miles Calvert, evangelizes its use yearly, encouraging his students to participate in Speedball's New Impressions Contest, where they produce work in every print medium. So... If you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever kind of inky idea you want to throw at it, then head on over to speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up the start of your next edition. My guest this week is Lyle Castongay, co-founder and director of Big Ink, a traveling large format relief printing studio. We'll talk about how he came to printmaking through illustration, 
the logistics of building Big Inc. and how they switched up their programming in the time of COVID, and building your company with a business partner who also is your life partner. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to go larger than life with Lyle Castonke. Hi, Lyle. How's it going? I'm good. How are you, Miranda? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really pleased we could have you back on the podcast because you are the great lost episode of Pine Copper Lime. And what I mean by that is last time we sat down to chat, it was just a couple of weeks before the global pandemic took over the world. Everything went into lockdown. And all of those projects that you had mentioned in our last recording um, had to be postponed. So it's great to have you back on again because it is the sign that there is a light at the end of this tunnel. Um, we can talk about gathering people together again. We can talk about making art together again. And so I'm super pleased to welcome you back and to learn more about Big Ink and its new iterations as well. So before we start all of that, please let people know who you are, where you are, and what you do. Cool. So yeah, so uh, thank you for having me, first of all, uh, having me back. And uh, <laughs> uh, so my name is Lyle Castonge. Um I'm the owner and director of Big Inc. Uh, with my partner, Karen Burnett. Uh, we travel around the U.S., uh, basically... We help other artists create large-scale woodblock prints. So they have to be at least 24 by 36 up to 40 by 96. Um, and the artists go through an application process on our website. They apply to a specific event. Um, and if they're accepted, we sort of go through this matriculation process. We give them an online course, which walks them through how to create a woodblock plate on their own. They kind of carve it independently. And then we meet up at a venue two months later after the deadline when they apply and we help them print their work. And one of our, the unique things about our program is we have a giant uh, mobile printing press, which we call a big tuna. Um, so we set that in various locations across the U.S. So yeah, we do about uh, 10 calls for entry each year. And then we do another 10 events, which are part of our visiting printer program. And that's when we go to art associations, schools, museums, and they'll get a group of students together or artists um, in the local area. And then they were kind of like printers for hire, itinerant printers. And the process is, we just don't judge people into it. They kind of bring people together on their end. Yeah. And how big are the groups of people that you can get together? So it's typically over the course of a weekend, it's a Saturday and Sunday, it'll be 16 people, eight people each day. Um, and it runs the gamut. So about 50% of them are printmakers, and then the other 50% are like sculptors, painters. They could be people who are just like wanting to try woodblock printmaking in like a big way. So it really like runs the gamut. We have like master's degree students, we have professors, we have, you know, like it really just runs the whole, the whole range. Yeah. So before we get into all of the logistics, please let us know a little bit more about your background how you came to printmaking, how you ended up making it your vocation, your passion that you share with your partner, how you ended up building your life around it. Sure. So in 2010, I graduated with a bachelor's degree from New Hampshire Institute of Art here where we live in uh, New Hampshire. And uh, I was doing 
lithography and woodblock printmaking as my senior thesis. I didn't, I, they didn't have a, like a dedicated printmaking program, but I took as many printmaking classes as I could. I was technically an illustration major. And when I graduated from there, I started to focus exclusively on relief printing because I didn't have access to a press. Um, and I liked to work large scale and, you know, to create large plates in terms of like the cost, the tools and everything that was involved. It was, it was very approachable. You know, all you really needed was like the plate and some carving tools and paper and you could make work. Once I graduated, I went to ZMA's printmaking out in Western Massachusetts and I did an internship there. And I just kind of fell into a community of artists that were like-minded and, you know, we're all interested in the same stuff. And I kind of became branded as like the big relief person there. They were like, oh, like does like the big prints. So I started to teach classes at ZMAs and I was doing, like, I was teaching people how to make two by four foot plates. And it was really a cool experience. Um, but what I found from that was people needed more time to kind of like process. Like, so we were doing like four or five week courses. Like we'd meet once a week and people would, some people would like pump it out and do it really well. Other people just need more time to kind of like digest it. So me and my partner, Karen, we started to talk about like, well, maybe there's a way that we can teach people the process where we sort of work with them more remotely um, and they can do it on their own time. And then we just meet up with them and we still have kind of that camaraderie of like a community shop, like at least for a day and we like meet each other face to face and then we involve other artists. And we did our first one at ZMAs in, when was that? It was like 2012 uh, and it went really well. And then we started to go to print shops that had a large press on site, but uh, we hit the ceiling kind of quickly with that because there's just not a lot community shops that have a large press that that an artist can just walk into and use. So what are the actual sizes that you are working with, both in inches, but then also if you know, could you say it in centimeters as well for our international audience? I don't know the centimeters, but the press bed is, is 48 by 96. So that's 120 by almost 250 centimeters for anyone out there beyond the borders of the US of A, uh, who happens to be listening. So point being though, we're talking quite big prints, yes. Yeah, and the biggest that artists can work because we're kind of limited by paper size is 40 by 96. So it's a little bit, more, but it's still you know almost the full size of the bed. I was thinking when you were talking about your story that something that's wonderful about woodcuts is that woodblock printing it's so accessible. You know, I think it's the earliest form of printmaking. And as you're making it, you can see it happen in real time. You see that negative space disappearing as you carve. You can see that image coming into being. You put the paper on, and it's this really direct seeing the image transfer, particularly when you're working with, like, single block woodcolor, which is what uh, Big Ink does. So you've taken this kind of simple form of printmaking. And then you said to yourself, but what if we made it huge? <laughs> and then it just added this whole other element of performance and drama to everything. And I'm sure that that engages people in this really strong way that if you were working in more um, sort of traditional sizes, it wouldn't. And, and you get to build on what can kind of be sort of a, a simple theme. 
Yeah, well, if you think about like what Gemini Gel used to do, where they would bring litho stones to people's artist studios, and I think the biggest barrier for entry for any of the print processes is the knowledge and the tools and the technique. Like artists are into it, and they want to do it, but once they get into like with woodblock printmaking in particular, we meet a lot of artists that are like, I tried woodblock printmaking, but it was really hard. And so I'm like, well, why was it hard? And they were like, well, I was using these tools and like, I, and, then, and then they're like, I was using this like pine plywood. And I'm like, oh, okay, we'll stop right there. <laughs> you know, who's not using the right stuff. So I think that like, when we give people an opportunity to be like, hey, like, you know, we've had really good success with like these particular items, you know, like if you use these tools, like this kind of substrate, then it'll be a lot easier for you. Once we lower the barrier of entry, then there's artists that are not printmakers that want to do it. They're like, I want to just try this. This looks cool. And also, you know, you don't have to necessarily spend like a hundred hours carving a plate. I mean, some artists a etching needle or like a burin or something and just do almost like a big dry point. Yeah, there's there's like so many different variations. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be like something that you just slave over for like weeks and weeks. I mean, there are people that do that and they do amazing work, but I'm also telling people like it doesn't have to be, you know, you can make it you can make it kind of fit into like what you do. Like maybe you're more of an abstract painter or something where you can do something that's kind of abstract and loose like on the plate. And you don't necessarily have to carve like every tiny little minute detail and it can still be really interesting in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like one of the seeds for Big Ink was your own personal practice that you were just sort of known as the big woodcut guy. And that naturally led to you showing other people kind of how to do it. And you can see that direct link between that and what Big Ink is today. So what was it though kind of originally about big woodcuts that appealed to you? What sort of drew you to them that then led to you being this icon within your circles as the the big woodcut fella? Well, I'm a very analytical person by nature and printmaking was so, was so process oriented that I just I glued to it like immediately. Uh, I didn't find it until my junior year of college but when I did I was like oh this is perfect like it has a step-by-step -step process and when I started to do relief printing it was just so easy to go big with it and I was really into just like stepping back away from the plate and like doing almost like the Matisse method where he would like draw with like a big stick you know like on canvases attach like a sumi brush to to a stick and I would paint on the wood and then I would challenge myself to try to like carve in a way so that it had that flowing kind of nature to it still. So for me, it was just more like the physicality of working that large and then like the challenge of the, the process, like understanding what the tools could do, understanding like what alternative tools could do to kind of like change the plate and manipulate it. Um, and now the challenge is like doing larger scale work that's in color. So it might have like eight or 10 colors in it or something like that. So I'm just kind of like plugging along in, in that direction. But it's always, for me, the process has always been a challenge. Like I've never personally, like for my work, I'm always a bit surprised by what comes out in the end. And that's, that's what I about it. I'm not just like pedaling the bicycle, so to speak. Like I'm like waiting to see what comes out. And sometimes things work really well and sometimes they don't. And I, I kind of like that in the process. Yeah, absolutely. If you can be there for 
both sides of that art making journey and approach it with a kind of curiosity that it sounds like you have that kind of like oh that that really worked or, or oh man that really didn't work if you can have that attitude it makes for such a longevity in your personal practice because if you take each sort of quote unquote failed work to heart it's really difficult to return to the practice with a sense of levity and a sense of joy well the other thing is is so the people that we work with at events some of them it'll be like they either haven't made a woodblock print in a really long time or it's the first one. And then but they approach it in a way that they have no preconceived notion of what they should be doing. We give them a class which kind of like guides them through the process. But sometimes people will just do like random things. Like uh, we had one artist that did a lot of work with uh, dental tools or he was using, yeah, he was just scratching the plate with dental tools. And he also used a Ponce tracing wheel to like create this like interesting, almost like a, like a dot effect, like that he would just run the Ponce tracing wheel, like over the plate surface to create these different textures. So if it was just me in my studio by myself, and I was just kind of practicing like the same thing over and over again, I would never be exposed to like all those cool things that kind of continues to inspire me too when I see what other people how other people approach it yeah I could see that so you were saying that you wanted to undertake bringing big woodcuts to the world but you ran into a roadblock and that was that there's only so many printing presses of the size that you would need out in the U.S. which are accessible to the public so you had kind of a creative solution, which is you decided you would just take a giant printing press with you when you traveled. How did that come about? So in 2016, Karen and I did a Kickstarter campaign and we uh, raised the funds to have a press basically, you know, custom made. And then we developed a means of transport, which is, it started out with a trailer that we pulled behind our car, but then it moved its way over to a cargo van. But uh, there's less, I mean, I would say, you know, people can always correct me if I'm wrong, but there's probably less than half a dozen presses that in the country, you know, here in the U.S. that people just walk into. There's there's ones at universities and things like that, like that was an option, but, but an artist who just wants to go in and use a press, there's very few that are available. So we had the press built and, you know, it kind of had its like maiden, had its maiden voyage so to speak, in the middle of 2016. And then ever since then, we've been lugging it around everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So how does it work logistically? Like it actually sort of collapses down and there's some setup and takedown involved, but not as much as you might think, if I remember. Yeah, it takes about two hours for us to set it up and about the same amount to break it down. So the bed breaks into two pieces and then the the outriggers, which support the bed as it goes through, those come off the center portion. And then there's a table which supports the two rollers in the middle. That's the heaviest part that weighs about like 400 pounds. Yeah, me and my brother uh, fabricated a table which goes from, you know, standing height and it has a uh, like a crank handle on it. So it goes down. So it actually goes really low to the ground. And then we have the ability to wench it into the back of our, of our van. So course of the years, we we're always like, every time we do an event, we're always like, what can we, what can we do better? Like, what can we pare down? Like, do we really need to carry this with us? I bet. Yeah. I, I could imagine that at the end of a long day after printing and interacting with people and of course the huge physical effort that's involved in making artwork 
of that scale, no matter what you're doing. I don't know. Do you ever sort of look at big tuna at the end of the day and know you have another two hours worth of work ahead of you and be like, oh, I don't know about this, honey. <laughs> you know, it's funny because people often, they're just like, yeah, the, you like you don't have to go work out. And we're like, this is our gym. Yeah. Like, this is like what Yeah, we, I bet, we, I bet. But I get a, at the end of the day, you would think like you, you'd be totally wiped, but it's kind of like an adrenaline rush because you have all these different people that you're working with and it's very focus driven. Like, you know, hey, we're going to help them produce this work. And by the end of it, I don't know, like you're just, you're just so elevated by the experience, like of just doing like helping all these people that at the end you're like, Oh, it's, we, it's not like, Oh, we have two hours. We're like only two hours for, and then we'll be done. You know what I mean? Like, cause, cause the lead up to that was so, was such an undertaking, you know, communicating with the artists, getting them there, you know, making sure they find the place and unload everything. So by the end you're like, like that's done. Like all we have to do now is load it up. That's like the easy part. Yeah, I bet. Particularly if you're someone who gets energy from talking with people and interacting with people, but you also get to see people seeing this happen for the first time, right? So like making big woodcuts, that's part and parcel of your life. But the excitement that other people must get from getting to see it new, you know, getting to see that kind of magic, that must be really uplifting as well. Yeah, it's very much like Christmas for people sometimes. I mean, like the, it's like a holiday. They they come and they they've spent two months working on this plate, and and a lot of them don't have the ability to proof it to see what it looks like. So they're kind of like, I really have no idea what this is gonna look like. And I would say like ninety five percent of the time, they're always like, Oh, that's so much better than I thought it was gonna look. You know, and so there's like this relief, and then also they're just like happy. They're happy that they undertook the project and having a deadline like that. They're like, you know, it was like I had to put a lot of time and energy in this invested, but I got it done. And like now I have this really cool thing that I made. And there's almost like this party kind of thing at the end. I could definitely see that because there's the, the delayed gratification in this process. Right. And that's not something that we particularly have much of in our lives these days. So that delay in time between the time and the effort you put into making your block and carving your block and actually seeing it printed must be quite the experience. Well, with COVID, the you know, people were just happy that it was even happening, like that we were even doing the event. They were like, you know, because we normally have the public come in and the public can kind of mingle with everybody. It's just a free demo. But a lot of artists were like, this was the only thing that I have for the year to look forward to. We were just happy that it was happening. We were like, yeah, we want to, you know, we know that they spent a lot of time. They've invested a lot of their energy. So we want to follow through on our end and make sure that it's as good as it can be, you know, given the current situation. So, Yeah. Could you speak to how you've been adapting, how things have changed and how you've managed to keep things safe and keep things going, given everything that's been happening in the last 18 months or so in the United States? So when everything shut down in March, we were supposed to be going and doing events in early April. So we only had, you know, three or four weeks to figure out what we were going to do. And like everybody else, there was definitely like a panic for like a week or two there where we were just like, we don't know what's happening. Um, but we reached out to all the artists and one of the events was in San Francisco. So it was like we had to go. We, we live in New Hampshire. We had to travel out there and you know, San Francisco was like not the place that you wanted to go at that time when everything was shutting down. 
so we reached out to all the artists and we just said, you know, we're going to postpone these events and we don't know when they're going to be rescheduled yet, but like, we're going to, we're going to reschedule them. Like you just have to kind of like trust in us that like, this is going to, you know, we're going to make this happen. And everybody was, was so gracious about it. They were like, that's fine. Like, we know that this is going to happen. And some people were even like, thank goodness. Cause I needed more time to do this. Like they were like relieved. They're like, Oh, I have more months to do it. Like, that's great. Like they were actually happy about it. So yeah. So we were able to reschedule everything and anything that was supposed to happen spring of 2020, we just sort of pushed back into late summer and fall. So we had like a crazy, like really condensed period of activity for September, October, November last year. Basically did everything we would do in a year in like three months. But yeah, it was, it worked out well. And artists were, you know, they're still applying to, to events, even though I think that people are getting used to the new normal of things. And since we're still not allowing the public to come in, uh, you know, people are comfortable with that. And we break people up into like morning and afternoon groups. Like, I mean, it's really, there's less than like 10 people in the space at one time. So it's, we're being as cautious as we can be. And thinking about how I have a lot of friends and collaborators who are teaching in academic institutions. And it sounds like they've been doing really similar things. You know, you have to be careful of things like timing and spacing and masks, but you can make it happen. And it's just the new normal. And I am absolutely positive everyone would rather be slightly less comfortable than they were in the before four time, but still getting to make art rather than giving it up entirely. Particularly for artists who, as you're saying, like this might be the only thing that they do. Like this is hugely important for them to to keep up sanity and to keep up any kind of creative reward going at this time. Yeah, the other thing that we did too was we we would just shoot uh, a like a two minute video. So since the public couldn't come in, we would like hold the plate up and we'd be like, hey, this is you know such and such artist, and we're about to print this block that they carved, and then they would have an opportunity to introduce themselves, just like a little snippet, and then we would put it on our Instagram channel, and people really responded to that, you know, and, and that's up there for you know for posterity, um, but we're one of those things that we're going to keep doing even after things open back up because artists really appreciated it. And it's just like a little snapshot of that moment. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the things that's been good. If you can find anything good about this pandemic is that it has really pushed people to document what they're doing and putting it online and therefore making it more accessible to the world. So rather than having an artist talk for the 20 people who showed up, it gets recorded, it gets put up online and it has this afterlife that can last long after the event. And it's good for whoever sort of puts on the event, but it's also really good for the artists because that stands as a representation for the projects that they've been involved in. Yeah, I've, I've listened to more artist talks online in the past year than I would have ever attended in person previously. There's just a lot more opportunities for, for that. And I think that's, that, is like, that is one of the good things that came out. I think being more more aware of what your options are, you know, almost good. So when you were traveling around, what kind of reactions would you get from people? You know, you're, you're going around the country, you have this project that's kind of a performance that's really visually striking. What were the sort of reactions you got from people? I mean, people who may have never seen printmaking before. So most of the time, 
well, at least when the public is allowed to come in, people will come in and be like, oh, what are you doing? And we'll kind of explain it. And a, like a light bulb will go off. They're like, I remember doing something like this when I was like a kid, you know, because a lot of times in, in grade school, you know, they would have you do the little potato prints. Or, like, yeah, you know, I was going to say that uh, potato prints yeah. has always been a theme for me as well that I hear. Yeah, yeah. So they would, they'll be like, yeah, like that's kind of, that's cool. And then they would watch us working and they would see the plates and they'd be like, wait, did someone make this? And so then there's like another layer to it. We're like, yeah, like someone carved, remember your old potato print? Well, this is the potato print on steroids. <laughs> yeah. This is the big potato. The yeah. Potato. So yeah, people will see it and they're like, they're so fascinated by the process. And one of the things that we've noticed is people, even if they're not artistically inclined, they, people are fascinated by process. So the questions that we always get from people, and these are artists and non-artists alike, is they're like, oh, like, what's, what is that carved into? Like, what are you printing it on? Like, what's the ink that you're using? So there's actually a way to kind of like bridge the gap with people. If they, if they don't know anything about art and they're maybe not comfortable talking about art, they're comfortable talking about the technical side of things and you can kind of work them into the actual like art, like the subject of the piece, you know, and talking about that more. And we tend to travel, you know, we live in New Hampshire. So the tuna, you know, goes up and down the East coast, uh, quite frequently. And then we have relationships with studios farther afield. Like there's one in Denver and one in Eugene, Oregon, and Oklahoma city. Like they have a large press on site. So we're able to go to their space and like use their facilities and, and do the same kind of process. I'm hoping you could speak to interacting with the public a bit more. Uh, I know that, that for me, is for, for, for many years, I've been someone, not just with the podcast, but when I wear my other hats as well, something of a front-facing person in the world of printmaking. And so I'd love to hear from your perspective as well. What are the kinds of themes that you see coming up with people? What are the kind of questions you get over and over again or common misconceptions? What is it like to be a vehicle for maybe the first time someone has experienced printmaking since high school art class? Well, a lot of the times, so the first, the thing that people usually ask the most of is technical questions, like about materials and stuff. And then I think if anything, Big Ink kind of clears up a lot of misconceptions about the art making process because, you know, people will go into like a gallery and they see like the price of something and they're like, How, you know, this scene, that that's crazy a thousand dollars for that that seems like that seems outrageous to people who don't know anything about the making of art or like the process involved but then when we have people come in and we're actually doing the process and they're watching it in real time and they're seeing like the labor and all of the people that are required to do it you know to like basically make this one print i think for them they're like it's a justification of all that they're like oh okay you know they'll, they'll often say like wow this is a lot of work you know, people will come in who, who don't know anything about art. They'll be like, this, this looks really labor intensive. And we're like, yeah, it is. <laughs> it, takes a lot of time. it takes a lot of people to, to make it happen. So I think what it does is it actually adds, it adds value to the work. It would be like, you know, if you go into a museum and like there, there's paintings up on the wall and then like the person's there painting it like in real life, you know, like, and you're actually just standing next to them for the hours and hours or whatever it takes for them to make you see the skill that's happening in person. That's what people get to see. Is and, and because it's so big, you know, there's no way for them to miss it. I mean, they just walk in and it's like in their face. Um, 
So there's that. So what events do you have coming up? And what's on the horizon that people can look forward to seeing on social media or maybe even attending if you're coming to a print shop near them? Yeah, we have a lot of stuff coming up. So we have a few shows coming up from artists that have participated in past events. So one of them will be at Color Inc. Studio, which is in Hazel Park outside of Detroit. And that's uh, June 12th through August 14th. Uh, and then we have another one at Pyramid Atlantic Art Center in Hyattsville, Maryland. And that is uh, March 11th through April 17th of 2022. Um, in terms of events, like where people can actually apply to participate, we have we have a lot. Um, so there's one in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is on August 28th and 29th. There's one in Oklahoma City on the 2nd and 3rd of October. We're going to be at Pyramid Atlantic in Hyattsville, Maryland on the 9th and 10th of October. We're going to be at Color Inc. Studio in Hazel Park, Michigan on the 16th and 17th of October. We're going to be at Hatch Show Print, which is a really famous letterpress print shop down in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we'll be October 23rd and 24th of this year. And then Atlantic Center for the Arts, which is in New Smyrna Beach, Florida on November 6th and 7th. That's just the 2021 calendar. We'll be releasing our uh, 2022 calendar in September. That's going to be like our first actual like full cross-country tour. So we'll go to like Cincinnati, Denver, Minneapolis, San Francisco. Oh, that's great. So you've heard it here first, print friends. This is your chance, West Coasters. Uh, you can catch Big Ink on tour. I'm also hoping you could speak to the collaborative nature of this project. Um, one of the things that always strikes me when I see photos of the different events online is that you all are getting consistently good results. You know, I just sort of swipe through and I'm like, oh, that's a winner. That's a winner. That one's awesome. Love that one. How do I buy that one? It's just always, always really good. So that being said, you know, you've talked a little bit about how um, you sort of set them up for success. And obviously, you know, you are working with a lot of people who have an artistic background. But what kind of goes on between them buying the block and actual printing day? Um, do you kind of step in and, and help them a little bit more behind the scenes? There's surprisingly very little, actually. I mean, there are some artists that will reach out to me as they're working and they'll say, you know, can you help me with this composition or can you give me some advice on like the texture that I should use in this area? But there's, there's very little back and forth most of the time. That doesn't happen all that often. The the series that we provide people is, it's over 20 videos. It's very comprehensive. It goes through the entire process. So there's a lot to dig into there. And we do jury people into the, the program as we kind of, you know, we have an opportunity to look through everybody's portfolio, not just the, the image that they submit, but then we'll go to like their website. We'll check out other things they've made. And we're really, the thing that we're thinking about most is, okay, if they're submitting uh, like a painting, you know, like, will this translate into a print well? Like, because we won't, we don't want to frustrate people with the process. Like, we want to be able to give them like an entryway into it that is fun and will encourage them to continue doing it. So, uh, there, those two things I think kind of give the best results. And like you said, there are some artists that, like, for a couple years, they'll be thinking of like a design. And they'll be like, I've been waiting to, you know, until you come into the area or just like when there's an opportune moment in my calendar to apply to this. So then they they could have been working on their design for like a year or two before they actually, you know, submit it for, 
for a call. So when they do reach out, do you ever hesitate to give them some kind of artistic guidance? Um, or do you see yourself as a bit of a collaborative printmaker in those moments, sort of using your technical knowledge to help create a successful image for everyone? I always give them the technical knowledge required. I don't want to be, you know, dictating like how they actually create their imagery. So a lot of the times uh, when artists reach out and they have specific questions, the worst thing that can happen is people get, they just get overwhelmed by the process or they start to think too much about it. Um, and because you have two months, it's kind of by design. Like it's, it's designed to be like more of a tighter schedule because if you give people months and months to create things, which actually is interesting because people did have more time last year to work on it, you know, because of COVID. The end result was actually really not much more different than like if they had had the two months, you know, like if they, if they had months or if they have two months, like it ends up being about the same. Um, so on my end, when people come in, they're like, I'm not quite sure, you know, how to resolve this. My, my advice is usually like, well, okay, there's these textures like might work well. And then I usually tell them, I say, you know, we have a collection of like 400 prints on our website. Like if you go through that, like there's so many things that you can, you know, water, mountains, like fur texture. I mean, you can just go through there and you can see what other artists have done to kind of resolve those things. Um, so that in itself is a treasure trove of information. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that's important to highlight for anyone listening who may not ever get a chance to participate. Uh, in a big ink event, um, is really that archive. You know, you've got 400 prints online, photographed well. That is a really great resource. So certainly make sure to check that out, particularly if maybe you're experiencing a, a writer's block uh, or a carver's block, so to speak. Um, it's because, you know, one of, the, one of the really nice things about woodblock is that you can kind of tell a lot of time what the artist did just by looking at the image, even in reproduction. You know, you can't look at a lithograph and necessarily be able to say like, oh, well, they clearly used this many drops of acid on it. But with woodblock, you get that. It's either, you know, what is black and what is white, and you just sort of have those two options, and you can look at it and see what did they leave, what did they take away. And so again, even in reproduction, you can learn a ton just from looking at that image. Yeah, it's kind of the gateway drug to printmaking. I think it is the most it is the most approachable and you don't necessarily have to have a bunch of specialized equipment. I mean, you just really need basic tools. That's why I originally was drawn to it because when I got out of school, I was like I don't really have, you know, any resources to have a studio or anything, so I would just do it on my kitchen table. I would just carve carve blocks and it was very easy to do to get into and I think for the future of printmaking, you know, to get people involved, like you have to make it as approachable as possible for people and also kind of like on their schedule too. Like if you can make it, you can do this on your own schedule and, you know, we're here to help you when you need it. Like, I think that's the way to kind of get people uh, on board. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point is that they can undertake this making on their own schedule because you know so much of the art world's not like that it'll be like well we have this exhibition and it's between this day and this day and it's going to be shown between this time and this time and if you can't get to it that's too bad and often those times are like nine to six meaning 
you know, most people who have a day job aren't going to be able to do that unless they happen to live really close to an art gallery or, or anything like that. So, yeah, the fact that they can work on this creative undertaking after they've got insomnia or after they've just put the kids to bed and they have an eight-week window <laughs> in which to do it. I, I think that is really significant. So I'm always keen to talk with people who have the job that I often see myself as having, which is that I'm this conduit between the public at large and printmakers and printmaking and to kind of speak to working with the public broadly and, and not just the, the audience, but the artists as well. Do you ever have to find that you play psychologist or cheerleader a little bit with the people who are taking on what can be an emotional undertaking, which is the process of making art, often working with a new technique can be really stressful. Is that part of what you do? Or does the vetting process in the eight-week window really help make people comfortable in, in taking this one on? Well, I think that most, you know, most people go into it understanding that it's going to take a lot of time. You know, the people that are are applying originally, they, they we have you know, people have followed us for years and they kind of, and most of them are aware of the process, like kind of how it works. And I think that they're, they go into it understanding that. I mean, there are, there are people that, that end up like needing more time, but we have, we've developed solutions for like pretty much everything. So like if an artist say, for example, you know, if they can't make the printing day, I do, I do addition work in my studio. So I'm just like, okay, well, if, you know, if you absolutely can't make it, you know, like I always telling them like I really strongly encourage you to finish it because it's not just it's not just the satisfaction of of your thing being printed but like you get to meet all these these other people and the public comes in you know so it's also like exposure to like people who might buy your work too because that happen you know just people walk in and they see something they like and they'll just buy it so you're kind of losing out on the satisfaction of that but I always tell them like if you absolutely you know if you need more time and if you're feeling really overwhelmed because that's you know, our job is not to make people stressed out and overwhelmed. I tell them like, you know, we can schedule a day and you can come to my studio and we'll print it. Or you can, you know, if you live far away, like you can mail the block to me and I'll, I'll print it, you know, for you. So whatever gets them to finishing, you know, completing the whole process. But I would say, you know, 98% of the time, if people are stressed out, they're certainly not telling me. <laughs> Like, I mean, that sometimes people do, but most of the time, I think artists are used to working under like tons of pressure, you know, to finish projects and deadlines. So, um, uh, usually when they get to me at, at the actual printing day, there's like a huge feeling of relief. They're like, I made it and I'm done. The gravy part. This is like seeing what it looks like. So do you have any words or maybe cautionary tales or hopefully let's say not just words, but words of wisdom for anyone out there who's looking at making their passion, their profession, and doing so with their partner. And I speak as someone who has done this myself with this podcast, because uh, as many people know, the editor is my husband, Tim, and he is a huge part of making this happen. There wouldn't be Pine Copper Lime without him. Yeah, so the first thing I would recommend is make sure you have the support of your partner, your significant other your family because Karen, I mean, I, I can't stress enough, like how indispensable she's been like helping me with all of this. She helps me with like every aspect of it, you know, doing the events. She's usually the one that engages with the public. So while I'm engaging with the artists, like showing how the process works, like she's, she's actually talking to all the public people. If anybody's tired at the end of the day, it should be her because she has to 
the process is about a million times that people and so that that first like you have to have the support and the artists that we work with a lot of the times you know they're like creative couples like one of the people is participating in the event but then like their husband or wife or a significant other they're like oh like they're probably gonna like apply to the next one you know what i mean like it's a lot of times like there's a very strong like mutual support in that way the other thing i recommend is so we didn't just you know i didn't i had a day job from when i graduated well before even when i was in school but when i left school you know i had a job all the way up until 2017 was when we finally started doing this full time and it was like you know, I was working full time as a web designer. And then on my lunch breaks, I would be like doing big ink stuff. And then it was just consuming more and more of my time. And we were making more income from it. And people you'll kind of know, like, there's like a tipping point where you're like, I can I can transition over into this other thing, but but definitely have a plan of transition. I think Anybody who's like, oh, you just need to go and like do your art thing without having someone is they're giving you like really bad advice. So there's that. The other thing is like, you know, you always hear people say like, you got to go into the studio and work from like nine to five. And like, at least for me, that would be an impossible scenario. <laughs> um, because being a, being a self-employed person, you know, when you're managing other it's different for everybody. I guess if you were just an artist, like making your own work and you had the luxury of doing that, I'd be like, that's awesome. Go do it. But like, you know, for me, it's like, I have to answer emails. Like I have to load stuff up for like the next event, prepare different. So you're doing a lot of, you have to be used to like multitasking and being your own marketing person. So that that's like the gems, I guess that I can offer people, but. Yeah. Yeah. That's all really solid, particularly what you're saying about, how many different hats you have to wear, right? Because it's not just, I have a talent for this and people seem to like it and oh heck, maybe they'll give me some money for it. But when you turn it into your job, it's all of a sudden you have to be your PR and your marketing person and your financial planner and your own artistic director and your own little small business. So if you're not prepared for elements of that that might not be as much fun, like opening your inbox and seeing how you didn't check it yesterday. So there's actually a bunch of new things today. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, you've made something that's out in the world and it's making people happy. And there's not a whole lot of people who are doing something like that. And that they can look back at the end of the day and say, this exists because I willed it into being. <laughs> and that person likes it. It's, it's a really good feeling. Yeah, when you have like when we do shows with like works from the collection, you know, it's, it's really satisfying to like someone will leave, someone will take like pictures of the show. Like, like we have one up in Oklahoma city right now. There's like 25 prints on display at an art center there. And someone just like tagged us on Instagram and was like, I just saw this like awesome show, like a big print. They had no, they had no idea we even existed. And so it's like they, they learn about us and then they see all the amazing work by these different people and when you're in the thick of it and you're doing all this work, having those ability, you know, to pull back sometimes is, is just really gratifying, you know, like, oh, that's, it's been years and we helped all these people make this work and people are, people are producing really nice work. So am I correct in remembering that there's a big ink archive somewhere that there's one of each print sort of stashed away for posterity somewhere out there in the world? 
we used to have, so we kind of transitioned it. So we used to call it an archive, but we have so many prints now and they're big, right? So we've kind of run out of storage space. So what we do now is that the work, we officially call it a collection and we do shows based off the work and the work is for sale. So uh, if we do sell something, it kind it works like the traditional gallery model. So the artists will get 50% of the sale. They set the price of the work, you know, that they want to get. And yeah, that's, that's how we do it. So we started off doing it as an archive, but I think just, again, it's like, if we can help the artist in any way, like if we can sell the print and they get, you know, they get paid for it, even if they can recoup the participation fee, cause they pay $300 to do the, um, the workshop, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of awesome because we produce three prints for them. Like they get to keep a couple of the prints and then, you know, the one that we have, if it sells, like they not only do they have the prints, but they've also, you know, maybe made their money back on what they paid to, to participate. So it's like a win-win. Yeah, definitely. So we're coming up on our hour recording mark here. So please let people know where they can find and follow you. Um, just kind of a, a little plug here. One of the things I really like about Big Ink is that you're producing beautiful work, but I also really admire how consistently and how well you document it. So it really does make following Big Ink particularly rewarding. So where can people do that? Sure. So they can always go to our website, biginc.org. Uh, they can follow us on Instagram at Big Ink Prints. And we're also on Facebook uh, at Big Ink Prints. Beautiful. Well, we will definitely put links to all of that in the show notes. And I'm also sure that if someone just puts Big Ink into Google, they'll get a bunch of things as well. That usually works. So I'll say my goodbyes here, and I'm going to pass you on to Tim to do a little shop talk, if you're still up for that and keen to give us a bit more time. But it was great to chat with you again and to learn more about Big Ink and the future of Big Ink, and I'm really looking forward to watching it all happen. Yeah, thanks, Miranda. And the only other thing I wanted to do is I just wanted to thank all of our participants and the people that support us, the people that host us. It's really great. And also Speedball Art Products, who also sponsors us. I just want to give a shout out to them as well. Yes. Yay for Speedball. They are also a sponsor of Pine Coffee Lime. And just generally, they do such good work uh, supporting print projects. Um, yeah, they're, they are absolutely great. So hats off <laughs> to you, Speedball. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Jennifer Mack. We'll talk about her early experiences with Monotype, keeping the practice fluid, and traveling around Japan from Okuhanga. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 